Hi, I'm Austis Jamstotter-Anerud, former Olympic javelin thrower turned mental performance mentor and mom of two. Join me and my incredible guests as we explore the mind's role in peak performance. Let's unlock your mental strengths together. This is the Athlete Zone podcast. Welcome to episode number four. As you can hear, my voice is still a little scrambled up, but I just had to bring you today's episode. I had to give you this interview with my guest. I just talked to Thomas Röller. For those who don't know him, he was the Olympic champion in Javelin in 2016. He was the European champion at home in Berlin in 2018. Well, he is the third best Javelin thrower in history after his massive throw of 93-90 in 2017 when he almost pierced the camera, man. Very famous. But he has such a great mindset. He has been through a lot. He struggled with a lot of injuries now for the last few years. And it was amazing to get to dive into his mindset around all of this. He was not your typical javelin thrower, but he overcame all of that. He became the Olympic champion. He worked his way through all of these injuries. And in this interview, we dive into how. I got to dive into his mindset and I can't wait to share it with you because this episode is absolute gold. And I know it's long again, but that was simply because we had so much to share with you. So let's not wait any longer. So here's Thomas. Hey, Thomas, how are you doing? Welcome to the Athlete Zone podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Hope the same for you. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. <clears throat> Still a little sick. Uh, so people are going to have to excuse my whiskey voice again. But let's hope that'll be better soon. So not everybody who is going to listen to the podcast knows everything about you. Probably a lot of javelin nerds that <laughs> know everything. But for those who don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Just a short intro. Who is Thomas? Yeah, um, happy to do so. Um, Thomas Röller from Germany, Jena. I was born in 91 and um, doing track and field ever since. I grew up in school level. I picked up the sport and it was just fun and hobby for me. And uh, why are these stages of school and club I developed into becoming the Olympic champion 2016. Um, so a huge development, um, also very emotional journey for myself. And um, besides track, I always took care of my educational career. I'm self-employed since uh, 13 years now because also making a living out of track and field is definitely a big thing. Um, it's not super easy. But I think I managed uh, to find a really good way in these days. I'm already supporting other athletes, sharing stories, um, creating on social media. So quite a lot going on. And at the same time, I'm still pursuing my active career. Yeah, wow. That is a good summary, but that's so true. It's it's amazing to hear that even for an Olympic champion, it's difficult to make a living in track and field. That's very sad, but unfortunately the reality of it but i love what you have been doing and how creative you have been around the sport to make a name for yourself to help others and you know all of that we, we might get into that but there's so much that i want to ask you and i got some good listener questions for you here today but uh, i want to start with something that i think a lot of people want to know because you you're you coming into the sport it wasn't the most orthodox if we can say so you don't have the physique of a typical javelin thrower you you heard this so many times you're probably sick of it but i think it's very interesting because it's so often when you know people think oh you know i i don't look uh, like those that are good in this sport then i can't do it 
and they just don't pursue it. Like if I'm a high jumper, but I'm not super tall or I'm a discus thrower, I want to be a discus thrower, but my, I'm not tall with long arms. Like, can I then do it? So I love that you are not <laughs> looking like a typical javelin thrower, but still you managed to become the Olympic champion. But in the beginning, you even pursued triple jump and high jump before you went for javelin. And people didn't believe in you in the beginning. How did you deal with that and overcome that and still, you know, get the fire to pursue javelin anyway? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's start the journey super early. So I, from the heart, I always loved throwing. So when I was just a small boy um, on vacation with my parents, throwing stones from the shore was just the best, best thing for me, having a little competition with dad. And that kind of had to wait a little inside of me. Um, because Germany is a system or the whole sports world is a system of standards and um, also the combination of social life and education brings these standards um, into being really important in my personal journey because um, I had my friends in sports. I wanted to go to the same school. Um, I wanted me and my parents wanted a very social stable system for education. So the sports school um, in Jena, the city I grew up and um, still living or training in, um, provided that at the sports high school. So I needed the standards to be there. And I, as I was growing up, um, being the fourth place guy, um, the one that had the beard a little later than the other boys, it was tough for me. So I needed to kind of um, seek my success in the technical events. I was good at the hurdles at the beginning. Uh, I was never the super fast at sprinter, but running was okay. Um, endurance never really worked, um, but I was good at jumping. I was good at the high jump, triple jump. So I chose that just to get these standards for the school. Um, but from the heart, I always loved throwing. And on regional level, I sometimes competed. The technique was just awful. When I look at these pictures today, I'm like, oh, man. What did I do? It's very there? humbling. Yeah, it's very yeah. humbling to see videos from the beginning. <laughs> I, I feel the same. You're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, well, but but that shows the passion. Like you still see that there was this willpower of throwing that thing so far. Um, yeah, and I stayed uh, as a jumper until I was 17 years old, and that's that. That's the like unusual part for javelin. Um, these days, I love when athletes are kind of far away from specialization for quite a long time because you learn so much. Um, but in these stages of development, it's definitely also sometimes um, quite mentally stressful if you're in something that's not the thing that's on your heart or your, your really inner passion. So uh, you were 17 when you started with Javelin then, when you kind of... Right, right. When I so changed that, to ja the... Javelin only, yeah, 17, 18. Yeah. Because that was a listener question. When when did you take javelin seriously? So you were 17, 18. Mm -hmm. And how did it go there in the beginning? Like, were you able to throw pretty decent at that time? or? Yeah, it took me one year of... Uh, I did, like, training as a decathlete would do. So I went for a... Mm -hmm. It was actually a heptathlete coach that coached me for one year in this transition time be, between being a jumper full-time and then being a full-time javelin athletes that was much physical work um i was at the throw squad for like two times a week just to have a little more of technical training because i wanted that so bad but the the throws coach at the time was also like whether you do it 100 or not and we all knew that my body was not ready to throw javelin three times a week yet so it, it needed that year of transition 
And from that on, it was a very, very nice technical learning um, kind of route or journey. Um, and because of that, I developed really fast in the distances. So when, when I started, it was like 56 meters or something when I went into really going for it, it was 700 gram um, in the last year being 17 year old. And then it went really fast from 67 to 71 to 74. And I actually made my first under 20 worlds in Moncton. Um, this, the, yeah, the, the first year of work with the throws coach, so with the age of 18. Oh, wow. So you actually had pretty fast development. Like you got really good at javelin very fast when you yeah. started with it. Yeah, because the, the groundwork that, that many javelin throwers miss these days is something that I just brought into it. For me, it was natu natural to, to risk a lot because triple jump is also not the healthiest sport that is that we have in track and field. So I knew how to kind of take risks on the ground. I just had to learn to to hit a javelin. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because you then you finished ninth at the World Juniors, and then mm -hmm. at the under twenty threes, the European under twenty threes, you were seventh the following year. And now we're at what was it, twenty eleven? So you made your first championships in twenty twelve, like senior championships. Mm -hmm. So you were twenty one oh, at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you had a little little rough start at the at the senior championships there in 12, 13, and 14. Or maybe not a rough start. I mean, what were you? You were 13th well, in the 13, first one. Th 13th with the same distance. That was uh, never happened to me again, actually, with, with the same distance um, being 13th. But, well, at the end, it was a really good learning experience. Yeah, I actually, I just noticed that when I was preparing for an interview. The guy who threw a better second throw there and took the 12th place from you is Gabriel Valin from oh, Sweden, oh, whom I yeah. was actually training with in the last years of my career. <laughs> and I, I thought that I had the title of, you know, the worst luck in Javelin. But when I saw this, because I've been 13th four times, four times three Europeans and yeah, yeah, three Europeans and one world championships. I was like, okay, that's enough now. <laughs> mm -hmm. But with the same distance, that that burns. But how? Yeah, then it's a you you didn't quite manage to perform in in thirteen and fourteen, even though you were throwing further in the season. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Like how? What was going on there? How did you feel? Hmm. And so on. Well, as far as you remember, back, I mean, it's ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do remember. I do remember because um, end of thirteen, lots of changes happened. Uh, then I changed coach, and from that day on, I work with the same coach I'm still working with today. Um, but oh, it's okay. it, it hasn't been about that. It was more like in javelin, you have these kids' diseases like elbow and shoulder overuse, um, things that's gonna that's just gonna happen. Like I get these questions on social media, like on a daily basis, like how bad is that? How bad is this? Well, as long as you don't have to undergo surgery, it's usually okay. And then it's fine to call it like it's a disease. Um, there's some things you, just need, you need to go through as a javelin thrower. And that happened at the time. It's just the load and the intensity that goes up. And because the years before were so successful, um, and also, we've been trying to aim for 2012 Olympics, too, as a super young javelin thrower, like in the years of development, let's say, not in, in age, but the years of development. 
Um, it was the first year using like heavier implements in winter. We've been throwing um, when there was snow outside, throwing twice a day. And yeah, things that I would never, ever do again. Um, you get wiser over time. But um, still looking back, it's all such a learning experience uh, because at the end of the day, 2014 then turned out to be one of my most successful years again. So there's ups and downs in sports, as there will always be. But the, the start into men's was definitely rough. It's, I think it's never that easy. Like, especially I'm, I'm also happy that I was never good at 700. Because looking at the statistics, we have almost nobody that's really good at the 700 going into men's um, javelin and then really developing into world class. Yeah, that's very interesting. But I know that this is very difficult for a lot of young throwers, exactly what you're talking about, the transition from the juniors to the seniors. And you have maybe have a success at the junior championships and then you come to the senior stage like you do like continuously. There was no gap in between. It was already the next year. How did you, was it tough for you mentally to have been, you know, up there and then all of a sudden you, you had to fight your way up and things weren't going maybe as well as you wanted, like you missed the Olympics and how did you deal with that mentally? Oh, well, not making the Olympic team was a little tough, but then I also understood sports systems because I did have the international standard and I was a young athlete, not really knowing much about the inside of the sports structure yet. So I was quite clear, like, why don't they take me to the Olympics if there's only one German going and we have three spots? Like, what? where's the sense of it? So I had to watch the, the Olympics 2012. I was on vacation um, sitting there. And that, that, that definitely had mental influence um, for the next years, like huge motivation. Um, a little bit of, like, why am I not there? Thoughts come up for sure while you're sitting there watching it's still the same like i hate watching javelin competitions when i'm not there um i think uh, when the day comes when i love watching them it's time to quit but it's still like if i watch javelin from the outside it's tough to do so for me um but it's always brings this motivation of being active going out there and, and practice for me it all went quick so the years of development still we always need to to be sure that i started 2010 and then we're just talking 2014, so it's just four years. And I'm a patient, patient man. Um, I can. Yeah, wait you're for a very things. patient man. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I can wait for things. It's always a long-term strategy that's kind of in my brain. Um, so that was not never that stressful for me. It was more like a motivational thing. It was a really bumpy road, um, but from then on, and also with the new coach with Haro, we we found a way to make things more steady. Yeah, I, I love that you're emphasizing this, that you need to be patient because that, as you say, is your quality, clearly, but not everybody's, certainly not. And I mean, I'm lucky enough to come from a small country where they actually want to send athletes to championships. And it feels like now I live in Sweden and I see, of course, in Germany, you have a lot of good athletes and it seems to be more of a you need to prove that you're worthy so then it happens so often that athletes like yourself who have qualified are actually not sent. And this is something that I thought about throughout my career. It's like, wow, this must be so difficult to deal with. So I can imagine that that was tough. But so it was clearly just patience that took you through you. You seem to have been very mature for your age, let's say, 
to be able to be patient for it right at that stage. Yeah, and it's something that also kind of goes into technique too. Like you have to be yeah. patient to learn properly, to not skip steps, but also the patience itself. I mean, it's the word we use the most when it comes to technical training and javelin. That's true. That is very true. But it's also very strong to be able to use something like this as motivation. Because a lot of people get so frustrated that they maybe justify quitting or, you know, they give up a little bit because it's like, oh, what's the use? I won't be sent anyway. But you use this uh, just to fuel your fire. And yeah. you certainly did. Yeah, definitely sure. did. These, these yeah. days, it's as the generations change, I, I still do see that as a huge problem that we have in the system here. Like we have these spots to send people, but we save it for, I mean, they calculated like how good are you going to be at the Worlds? Like who knows before, like there's championship performances. You always have surprise kids there. Um, why not give them a chance? Um, so this is something I don't share that philosophy very much, especially with the young generations we have now. Um, they need this early motivation just to keep going. It's also, you have to learn to compete at championships. I mean, I went to Beijing was my first Olympics and I was, I had a little bit of injury in my elbow, so I wasn't really ready to compete. It could have been okay, but we were taking a chance. If I was from Germany, I never would have been sent. But then I go to the final in London. And I think the difference of my experience, just the whole thing, like the village and, you know, the stadium, everything, it was so big in Beijing. But when I came to London, it wasn't, it didn't impact me as much because I'd seen it before. So I'm not sure I could have had my performance in London if I hadn't been in Beijing. So I think it's important to allow young athletes also to get the experience if it's possible. Because that's Definitely huge. Definitely agree. agree. But, but you had then uh, a breakthrough in Beijing in 2015. And there you actually performed really well at the championships. You took fourth, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you took fourth. What was the difference there before those championships? Other than, you know, you maybe had gotten over the kids' diseases and uh, learned to, you know, you had developed technically. But what do you feel like mentally, like when you're in the competition? You know, did you feel a difference there? Yeah, as you said, like you learn to compete. You learn to deal with certain atmospheres and you kind of develop your own strength also competing. Like I, I started being good at orientation. I started being good at preparing the day of competition just by being at the venue early, like having a look, understanding the stadium. Um, so I, I slowly learned to compete. Like 2014 um, was a big hype for me winning the Diamond League without knowing that I had even a chance until the final. Um, so that was more like get a couple of good throws. Um, I wouldn't say just lucky ones. You still need to be stable on a really good level to win the Diamond League race. But um, that kind of gave me this emotional push into 2015. Like you're a winner. Um, you, you have a chance of um, really being something in the sport on the highest level that we can talk about. Um, but then really being in Beijing... I was just doing what we did in the in the workouts because we shifted focus from extreme maximum distance development into being as stable as could be like how easy can you go how far like 
how stable can we get competition results over the summer? How, how do we use the training methods that we have to prepare the body to compete much, but also on a very stable level? And that exactly happened in Beijing. Like when I remember right, it was like 86, 86, 87, 86. So super stable, but nothing crazy um, at the time. And that kind of also formed myself as an athlete. How did you feel like you got that stability? Did you think about the throat differently? Hmm. Or what was it that was the difference there? I would say the focus in the workouts. Like I stayed for throws in the grass, sunset sessions and training camps. Like sometimes I don't want people on the podcast to get the numbers wrong, but sometimes I ended up trainings with like 130 throws on grass, um, just tip control, targeting on 60, 60, 80% intensity. Um, That's quite much. There was also days when I quit after 30 throws because it was just not the day when the coordination was off from max strength workouts, whatever. So we put this focus on on output, not on how many are we going to do today. We've more put the focus on really we want the output of 60 exact the same throws today. So we did. And when I didn't reach them until 30 throws, I kept going until 90 throws because I had these 60 throws of stable ones in my on my mind. Um, so this was much of a change before that I was more like, okay, today we're planning with like 40 to 50 throws. Um, let's do them and let's make every throw better than the other, uh, like the very yeah. normal way, very distance orientated. Um, yeah. and we went fra- went back from that distance orientation into quality orientation. So you basically took down the intensity so that you could focus more on the technique and that's how your technique got more stable is what I, how I'm understanding you. Yeah. Intensity of the one single throw, um, yeah. we took down a bit, but I would say the overall amount kind of created another intensity. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But you would never have been able to do that amount of throws with the same intensity no. in each throw. So true. So true. Because <laughs> when I hear hundred throws, I'm like, I, yeah. my arm would probably have fallen off somewhere halfway yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> now that's also something you need to kind of develop into. Like you cannot yeah. start like, uh, there will be a lot of people now listening that the next day they go out on the field and throw 120 javelins and they're going to regret it for like six weeks. Um, <laughs> that's, that's just javelin. You need to know what you're doing. You need to kind of understand your body. You need to really feel it. And you also need to learn to communicate with your coach. Yeah, that's so important. What happens in 100 throws? There's the technical feedback, but there's also this feedback of how does the throw feel and how does the body kind of react to that? Yeah, I I love that you you seem to be, I mean, in order to take the intensity down, right, then your distance is going to go down. And I think that is very mentally tough because I think, I mean, I, I definitely fell into this trap way too many times, more than I would love to admit, but that you like, you want to prove yourself a little bit to yourself in training. So you're like, I'm pushing it a little bit just to see how far I can throw mm-hmm. to give me confidence before the competition so that I can go in there and say to myself, I can't throw this far because I did it in training. And then people are talking about training PRs. And because they're always chasing them, they don't get as much quality work in and they don't get the consistency. It's very tricky. But uh, but what about the mental side? Do you feel like you were more mentally, other than obviously having been there before, you know, at the championships, like if you think about comparing how you felt 
in the competition, like in the qualification in 12, 13, and 14, and then in the final in 15. Like, did that play a part in you getting your best out there? And in what way? Definitely did. So qualification, I still don't like qualifications. I think no one really does. But the purpose of qualification also shifted. Like I was able to take more risks because once you won something in the sport there, like for me personally, the, the have to part, this proving to myself part gets smaller and smaller and smaller year by year, um, winning by winning. And after winning um, Diamond League, for example, I knew that there is not this, I have to become the world champion, but there is a chance I could do it maybe if things get right, if I'm a little lucky on the day. So I use qualifications also to test things, to understand the stadium, to understand my body. And usually it's one or two days away from the body and is also mentally ready to compete on the highest level. Um, Often the news or like media, they, they don't get it. Like you have a super bad qualification, you, you make it to the final somehow. And then you're like, well, he's in bad form, whatever's going to happen. And <laughs> these lines really make me smile because there is planning, there is structure behind that. So when athletes start to play in qualification, that's the, the number one sign for me that they are prepared very well for for the actual final performance. Um, and that started to happen. Like I started using throws, not just to throw far. I started using throws to exactly do what I'm doing in training, this quality feeling stuff, this understanding, which is maybe the best javelin um, on the day or for the stadium or the wind conditions. Um, how may I change the angle for the stadium a little bit? Because, well, how did you get the chance to to have a workout in Beijing, like no federations ever going to pay you just to travel there, have a few throws and travel back to understand the stadium. So the only yeah. chance you have is the qualification to be there, use the warm up throws and use the qualification throws to, to understand yourself in the place of the competition venue. Um, I think this is a huge part for my, for my competing. This kind of understanding the venue, and being super cool there to also mess up throws already knowing that I'm going to mess them up because I'm testing something. That is very interesting. In terms of and distance, always I'm talking about yeah. messing up. I'm just talking about distance <laughs> messing up. Yeah, the yeah, of course. Is, of like course. a messed up throw can still be a really good learning experience. Yeah, I, I love that attitude towards it because uh, it's often... Uh, main focus on the distance. So if the distance isn't good, the throw was bad, but it doesn't tell the whole story. But it sounds to me that you were much more relaxed also. You weren't trying oh, maybe yeah. as hard or in a, in a different way. I think this is very, very interesting. Now, this is my third interview. Uh, I talked to Kara Winger, so another javelin thrower, and I was talking to a swimmer last, last time. And the funny thing is that you all are saying the same thing. And this is something that I keep on repeating when I'm talking about the mental side is the relaxing, not trying too hard, taking the mm -hmm. focus maybe off of the outcome, the distance or, you know, qualifying or whatever, and just focus on the process, focus on what you're doing. And all three of you have now said that that's how you perform the best. It's just, it's just another proof. I had to point that out. Yeah. But before I, we're getting to, now we've covered your beginning and we're getting to the juicy stuff, obviously. <laughs> but before we get there, 
I am a little curious to to know because the focus of this podcast is mainly on the mental side of the sport. And I'm curious to know, do you do any kind of specific mental training or have you done on a regular basis? I, when I was in jumping, I got my first experience in mental coaching and it kind of messed up my performance for a year because I was not, <laughs> yeah, it was just, well, on the one hand, you could say it was bad coaching because it was for the group and it was, um, it just distracted myself from what I was doing. Um, then okay. over the years, over some years, I took this experience and that made me block out the whole coaching side of mental stuff. Yeah. But as I'm kind of self-educated in many areas, um, I for sure found out that this mental part is something that I could be good at, um, also understanding myself. So I kind of read a lot, um, understood more about myself. Um, you say write kind of, a lot. Did you journal then? You no, journal not then? write, uh, read, read, sorry. Oh, um, read, sorry. I read, oh, okay. I read a lot. Um, oh. No, journaling is tough for me. <laughs> you think <laughs> Just, so? No, nah, it's... I, I tried it for a time um, because I, then over the years, now I really had mental coaching for more than a year and I really loved it okay. and I learned a lot. And also I love to to talk about it and, and share my kind of share with my training group and my training partners, because I feel like if I had this type of coaching before as a young athlete, um, things have could have been like so much more relaxed way faster um, or more focused or kind of more directed, I would say. So you've had it now for a year, you say? Yeah, it's been like, what was it? It was like the COVID time when people had more time for things that you never get the time to do. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was that time. And it's not just for sport, it's also for life and having like, I became dead at the same time. So there was more going on in life. There was way more to coordinate. And I felt like this is a part where I could still get better with the help from the outside. So I think I got quite far also with my own head and my own thoughts and how I kind of structured things. Um, but I'm still really happy that now I understand more about meditation and, and, and things like that. So what is it that you did then? Was It, it was meditation, obviously. It was meditation, um, breath work. Um, yeah, I, I would say that that gets it. It's like... A, 360 degree everyone has another name for it but i would say that meditation with a little sports focus um gets it right but the person that i did it with was not in sports at all and i actually loved that because i really think that sports is just one small part of life and sports yeah. performance is then also connected to the rest of it so i actually love that uh, she was like she didn't know much about my sports and that was good i think because that helped us to to dive a little deeper that's very interesting so you say you're doing meditation uh not in relation was it just you know focusing calming down your mind and that sort of stuff or how did you oh use it? i love the visualization part because we yeah, found out that this is this is something that already happened in my in the things I did by myself. Um, but I never found the root into this nothing you get when, when meditating, right. And, and from like yeah. the visualization, starting from that neutral point of no thought 
was like i feel like this is so much more effective than the stuff i did before like it's like before it was the sand pit like i was really visualization visualizing throws and practices and it already helped but now it's way more detailed i would say and way more efficient after having the skills of really calming down and combining it with the right breath work um, just to really find this key for the for the mind to to open up the areas that need to be worked on. So you do then meditation to kind of come just for uh, people listening here. So you calm yeah. down your mind completely. So you don't just sit down and try to visualize because I know then your mind can be racing. You're thinking about everything and it can be hard to focus on what you're trying to visualize. And I think that's something that a lot of people do. When, especially when they tell me, oh, I can't visualize. I can't imagine these things. I, I just start thinking about something else. So meditating first and just kind of like, shh, you know, calming down mm. your mind to quiet it. Then you're in the space where you can actually start to visualize and not get distracted, right? Right, uh, step by step. So I really had to learn yeah. meditation to luckily it was no like i learned that my journey was super easy like i learned it really quick and i found ways to um to meditate quickly but what i found is that if i put myself in this situation of today i have to meditate today i want to visualize that won't work no um, it's too much pressure ex exactly as i do with the we we, we call it video-based training video motoric training we, we do that since yeah. 2014 um, watching videos, also catching the emotions of a throw, of a certain venue. Um, and that's also just happening when I want to, when I have this kind of feeling that I could go into the flow of watching the video, of really feeling it um, without much distraction. But distraction is for myself is also the wrong word. Like there is times when I sit on airports and I have a crazy good meditation just for like uh, two minutes or something. And I feel like, yeah, that's exactly what I needed now. Um, but yeah. developing that feeling of when is the right time to do it and what is the purpose of doing it? I think that's, that's what needs the practice. Yeah, I think that's a great point because if you're stressed or something is going on, you can't say, I'm going to do it tonight at nine. And then maybe tonight at nine, you're stressed about something or upset or whatever. And then it's difficult for you. So I love that intuition of feeling when you are ready. But what is it that you, you talk about video uh, analysis or like, mm -hmm. do you, do you watch your own videos or do you watch somebody else's? Almost never myself, my own. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It's, I think it's far from video analysis. We did that with biomechanics. We did this. We sometimes do it also with the coach, but there is teams that do, I would say 99% more than we do with watching a video and really talking about the arm needs to go up, the angle is this or that. Um, I think that's important when you learn the javelin, when you have to understand the biomechanics, then it's really, really important to also analyze. For me, it was more, and it is still more like looking at specific points. Like I love the right foot of Antti Ruskanen, for example. So I watched videos of him okay. just to understand the right foot. Um, upper body, let's take an example. I was often watching uh, Steve Beckley. Oh, just yeah. for the just for a little chest part it's things that are communicated with the coach for sure because you need to pull on the same strand so that's what i see with our youngsters like they sit back home they watch like luckily they do watch some videos um 
but there's a huge gap of communication to what the target te technique is and what the thought on technique on your brain is. And then there's what, what the coach, what coach wants you to do. And these yeah, that's things, not good. <laughs> these, these things need to be aligned. So when I was watching videos, I definitely also talked to coach what I'm watching and why I'm watching them. Um, yeah. yeah, but that, I think you get what I, what I was doing. I never watched one guy and I was never like, this is my technique I'm going to copy. It was more like single aspects of a throw that I was watching. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I, I, I don't think you can copy someone else completely. I don't think you can, you know, hey, now I'm working on this. Like you say, oh, I'm working on the right foot and I want to get a better feeling for it or like maybe see him do it well so I can imagine what it would look like when I do it well or something like that. This is actually like, it's almost a little bit like visualizing, except you've seen somebody else do it so that you can see what it looks like perfect. And then you can see yourself do it perfect. And so this is actually kind of, it works really well together. So that's, that's really cool. So you, you still do this? I still do this. Yeah, sure. But you don't have, you, you said you had gotten some mental coaching there for a year. So you don't ha work with anyone anymore. You just do this yourself. Uh, when I have a question, I do reach out, but, um, it's more like I do have the toolbox back home now. I know what I'm doing. And as soon as I get to a point where I want to learn more or where I kind of get to a point when I don't know any further, I just, uh, get into contact. Yeah. That's okay. how we do it okay. because just, it's also about, as we said, it needs to fit into the, into the daily life. And we try to keep the, the yeah. schedule up that we had of kind of, um, calls and meetings but then i found that well i didn't need that so much today it would be better to be at the gym for the 45 minutes or one hour and when i found that out i was like okay i'm standing on my own feet um and now it's time to go for practice um again and when i kind of made it through the journey of practice and i feel like now it's time to learn more then i will definitely reach out and really seek for more expert help but it, it needs to kind of in my personal opinion, it needs to kind of be aligned to the sports journey as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just like with anything, you need different things at different times. Like at one point, like what exactly are you working on in your technique right now? It might not be the same as last year or even like two months ago. And the same, like, oh, now I need to improve my speed or my strength or whatever. And I mean, from from everything that I hear, like you're obviously very patient and you seem to be very down to earth and calm. So you have some qualities that helped you. So maybe the mental side wasn't necessarily what you, even though it would have helped you, like you said, if you had done it in the beginning, but it wasn't maybe your weakest point. So it's always like, oh, okay, now I'm struggling with my mental side or maybe I can improve it now. But sometimes things can just flow perfectly. And then we yeah, need that, to put our energy into something else. So true. So true. I also, I always talk about potentials and also percentages of how much is this part going to make me better? Of course, it's estimated. Like you never know at the beginning of involving a new exercise into your workouts or starting with mental training. But before you do it, you have this feeling of how much is this or that going to help me and how much time is it going to consume from yeah, it takes time away for, for other things. And this is how I kind of balance it through the years. Of course, like going into a 20, let's say 2024 season, 
the book is full of ideas after the years, but still you need to prioritize and say, okay, this year we give this, this and that a go. We do this for a hundred percent. We test it. And as I said, with this long-term approach, if I say I go for it, I definitely go for it for more than half a year just to find out if, if it's going to work or not. Yeah. You have to test things out for yourself. Uh, that's just the only way. I mean, something that works for somebody else, you, you, it doesn't have to work for you. You need to find out what you need. But do you communicate with your coach also about this? You talked about like the videos and so on, but do you discuss also like, oh, okay, I'm going to visualize this or focus on this or, you know, you, you communicate yeah. about that. It is aligned. Like still, as we are a team for more than 10 years, I think the athlete still needs to have this little secret thing he's working on just always to get this it's tough to surprise your coach after 10 years. I can, I can definitely tell that to all youngsters listening here. Um, but I still love having this little secret thing that I'm working on, not telling everyone I'm doing it. Um, but then there's, there's the day when you just pull it out of the pocket and it suddenly works and it just puts a smile on the whole team. So you got to keep a little mystery in the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say so. Yeah. It's uh, maybe that's the clue for longer relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. But so what would you say to athletes? Because now this is something that I, you know, I felt like it changed so much in my career when I started working on my mental side. So that's why I'm doing all that I'm doing. That's why I'm sharing this. But a lot of people are not convinced that it's worth the time and effort. And this is something that most people skip first. What would you say to athletes that doubt that this is worth the time and effort? to do any kind of specific mental training, to work on your mind specifically? What would you say to them? Now put you on the spot. <laughs> well, as soon, no, well, as soon as your mind kind of gives you the chance to think about something, when the thought comes up, it's already the first sign that it's worth kind of grabbing the thought and kind of working with the thought. Um, and this is how I also get rid of bad thoughts, for example. Like I grab the thought kind of, um 360 look at it and and then i can put it into the treasure box or throw it away and that's that's just being super honest to myself and when the thought comes up like oh everybody's talking about mental training when it's mm. just that okay still everybody just talks about it and you don't really feel like you have any connection still there's that thought and you're going to test that thought and when it's kind of it's going to tell you if you should grab it or not so I really believe in listening to the heart when it comes to decision-taking. Yeah, so you just listen to yourself, like, do I really need it? And then, I mean, because many people maybe know that they need it, but then they're like, ah, this, this stuff doesn't work. You know, that, that's the most common. And let's be honest, how much do you know about it? Like, how much did I know what behind the, 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 the word of meditation, the word of visualization, it's just words with some letters. Yeah. Um, I can be super honest here. Like I did know nothing about it. I thought I knew something about it because of, well, the dictionary told me something about the word or Google, Google said something. But if you don't give it the chance to test, um, then you cannot really say something about it. So, so this is something you need to be fair to yourself and also fair to be the, the, to the thought that came up. Give it a chance, like really give it a chance to to help you. Yeah. So test it out, you lose nothing, right? Test it out, sure, yeah. 
worst thing that's going to happen is that it doesn't give you anything. But I'm curious. Also, I forgot to ask you, uh, when you started doing this, did you feel a difference right away or did it take some time? Let's say three weeks with two sessions a week. Um, then I was like, well, this, this is doing something. There's something going on. So um, especially what we did, like there's no secret. Um, I love there's also like a YouTube piece from Noah Lyles about it. Um, for example, um, is going away from distance into emotions really helped me. Like I was always trying in the workouts to have like, even now I'm trying to have the super long arm. I'm not the person that has the, by, by nature, I'm not the, the super patient thrower. I usually have like 110, 115 degrees, something. Um, and I threw really far with that, but I definitely know um, ever since that if I would go to 118, 120 degrees, it would just have a little longer acceleration and that would help me. But um, I found this mental approach because sometimes you have throws when you felt like, oh, this one felt long. This part of the throw felt right. And I was always trying to kind of copy that look of how it looked like, but I was never trying to copy how it felt like. Um, and that was mm. like a huge change that happened super quickly. Like I just shifted the focus of how should this feel like now? Um, and it suddenly worked and it still works. So that was just like somebody told me like, hey, think about how it feels. Don't think about how it looks. And suddenly it worked for me. Um, so this is like one clue that helped immediately after I heard it. Oh, it's so funny how, you know, you hear some little thing and it just click. It changes everything and it's just... It just turns around your perspective and you get it. It's, it's amazing when that happens. But so now we're going to go to the juicy stuff. Now I think we're good on the mental training part. So if we go to the Olympics, um, 2016, it wasn't, you know, an easy season for you. Obviously, mm -hmm. you, you had some injuries right before Rio. You struggled a little bit in Amsterdam, right? Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. What happened? It was quite, it was quite serious, actually. So it was, I would say until then, it was the worst thing I ever had through javelin throwing. It was a, a tear in lat and also latissimus. No, in, in latissimus yeah. and also zeratus, um, like a breathing mm -hmm. muscle, a small shitty one between the ribs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I went to MRI after um, and the lady at the MRI said, well, uh, you had a bicycle accident. I said, no, I was just <laughs> throwing the javelin. Oh, you have some broken ribs, I guess. And I was like, no doesn't feel like that though needs to be okay in six weeks and she was like oh okay um let's see <laughs> so no so my like my whole the whole throwing side the rib cage was all bruised um because there was like a real a tear in in the lat which was quite big and oh, my wow. body usually reacts with a lot of fluid as soon as something goes on so i was not able to throw for four weeks um, this so happened this six weeks before the Olympics. It was six weeks, yeah, six weeks before oh, Rio. Wow, Seven, six and okay. a half to be to be super correct. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it happened in the qualification in Amsterdam. Yeah. Oh, it happened in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. it happened in Amsterdam. And you still um, threw in the final, and you were fourth. Well, I tried. I tried. It was not really throwing, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not really throwing. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But. But so then after that, you said you couldn't throw for four weeks mm -hmm. and then you had like two and a half weeks before the games. Mm -hmm. That must have been crazy stress. 
How did yeah, you deal first, with that? Well, the first four weeks or the first three weeks, I stopped thinking about the Olympics, not in a way of I'm not mm. going to make it. I just blocked out this. I have to be ready in six weeks. I just put 300% of focus on that injury and I accepted it. And every free minute or like I, I it took every, every minute of a day to do something to heal. But also quickly coach was intending to keep my mind at throwing. Yeah. Okay. So whenever we had, uh, we actually kept the training schedule the same. So the written plan was still the same, even though when it, the plan said strength, I was at the physio. When the plan said throwing session, I was sitting before a laptop and watching like javelin for two hours. Um, that's how we kept going in the, in the I, normal. I have to say something there. Yeah. It's interesting that you say it because you, you were watching videos. And like I said before, it's like a little bit of, you know, you're, you're seeing yourself, you're projecting on yourself, right? This is a similar to visualization. Yeah. It's so interesting that you, I just want to emphasize this for people listening, that you, when you were supposed to have throwing sessions, you were watching it instead. That probably helped you because what happens in your brain when you're actually practicing the technique and when you just imagine that you're practicing it, it's the same thing. It's like you're changing connections between neurons in your brain. So it's the same thing that happens. So you probably were actually improving your technique while doing this, even though you physically did nothing. So this was probably a huge thing for you there. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Just no, like it, I had to grab this. This is perfect. super important. No, super important. And it, I, I would definitely sign it uh, that it works. <laughs> you uh, signed off also, on that. It was like the perfect proof for us because at the end, everything was good. Like I won the Olympics and um, me and coach, uh, it was a huge high five and hug. And we were like, okay, that, that stuff worked. Um, we didn't know before um, if it's going to work. But uh, the good thing was I didn't have to improve. We knew that uh, from the stats and from the year, I really knew what I was doing. And I knew that as soon as the shoulder, let's call it shoulder, like the sh it felt like the shoulder won't, won't work, but it was more like the rib cage. Yeah. Um, but I knew that is the day it's going to work again, I'll be fine. Okay. And, and I knew that six weeks is enough to heal a tear. That's just what I knew. Um, so I, I really kept trying to keep the stress level down just to have maximum um, time. And then when I was like, okay, it, it could work again, we waited another week to test. And I think this was one of the clues that really made it work at the end. Yeah, I think, I think this is very good. Just the fact that you accepted it and then took your mind off of it. And instead of focusing on what you couldn't control, which was the injury, you focused on the rehab. Like, what mm -hmm. can I do instead of, being, you know, upset about all the things that you can't do. So that I think that was, was a great point there. But did you do anything then specifically to like, you know, strengthen your mind there going into the competition other than the video analysis, since you couldn't do so much physically with throwing? For Rio. No, the good thing with Rio was I was just happy I was able to throw again. So that, that was just <laughs> putting a big smile on my face. And that, that was the only thing I did. I was just looking forward to compete. Uh, I was looking forward to see my first Olympics. I was super happy I was traveling there because I didn't know, like traveling back from Amsterdam with this bruised ribcage, I was not really thinking about going to the Olympics. But then I was there and I was just happy to be there. 
So you weren't really stressing about what would happen in the competition uh, at that stage? No. no. Okay. When I, after surviving the, the qualification, everything was clear. Like Then I really trusted my body again. Yeah, you must have felt in the qualification, it's like, okay, it is okay. I can throw. Yeah. The technique is still there. You know, yeah. my body's ready. So how did, how did you feel then between the qualification and the final when you had gotten that confidence back in your body that you could trust your body again? I really knew what I was doing. I really knew what I was doing. There was a lot of talking because it was one of the first times when they had two days between qualification and final. Usually you just have one day. And there was lots of discussions going on and I really didn't care. Like we, me and coach, we, most of the time we've been, at the time I was with Nike and they had like a beautiful golf, uh, golf, uh, yeah, kind of resort thing. There was monkeys, there was good food. And we were like, just hang out there, do nothing. Just wait for the day to come. And that's what we did in between. Just really focus on what you can and as i knew after the qualification that the body is good and as before i knew that the year was good and i'm kind of feeling well in the stadium too then i knew that everything is going to be all right it's just about the day um myself and then we need to see what the competitors are doing yeah perfect yeah this is i mean this is the absolute correct way to approach it and it's amazing that you kind of just intuitively i don't know probably with some help from your coach but you kind of intuitively went that way when it's so easy to just panic or stress or then get overexcited when you're like oh no i'm good again i'm gonna throw really far or something like that but you end up winning the lucky thing just uh, sorry uh the lucky thing all these things happen all these things happen before like the good thing i get these questions very often like how don't you panic I was already a grown-up athlete at the time. Like I was, I was having. I usually explain it from like city championships, regional championships. That's when you freak out. That's when you're like sitting on the toilet more than training before the competition. <laughs> that's that's all these things. Like I've been there, done that, and reflecting that you knew that it was not good for you freaking out as a kid going to the regional championship. But I never forgot these memories. I never forgot that it didn't make sense to freak out. So I still remember these kind of super young athlete experience and took them into like like the professional area because it's the same me. And that's something I get really serious about talking with young athletes. Like, hey, guys, you won't go from city level to Olympics. It won't happen to you. You will be, <laughs> there will be stages. There will be stages in between. Whatever you're going to do, there will be stages in between use these stages and feel these stages. Yeah, I mean, this is a very good point, even though I can still tell you, even a lot of grown-ups still struggle with this, but it just, a lot of this seems to come naturally for you, which is great. But uh, you then, like I said, you go on to win and you throw 90 meters for the first time in your career uh, to take the gold. How, How were you feeling? Like, can you... Do you remember what you were thinking like right before that throw? Uh, yes, I had one technical focus point. I was uh, in the Olympics. I knew from throw to throw what was going a little wrong with the, each and every throw. So I kept really in the zone of just, it was more or less tip control and a little bit of tilt angle. Um, okay. 
usually in a normal competition, I would change from, let's say you're at 10% off. In a normal co competition, I would try to go from 10 to zero and fix the problem. Yeah, yeah. But when it gets really important, I usually try to not fix the whole fault. I try to fix it by percentages. So I go from 10% like ah. off to, let's try to be 2% better, but not make it perfect. And that's what I did, like yeah. step by step, um, getting into the perfect. The, it only works when the, when the rest is good, when the, when the run-up is fine, when the conditions kind of stay the same, which is usually the case in big stadiums. Like usually, even if there is wind, it usually stays the same when it's a huge stadium. So yeah. it's kind of easy to focus on one thing. And, and Rio was like, for me, the one competition where it really worked out to go step by step by step into, okay, there we are. This is the solution. And I knew exactly when I released the javelin that that was that solution. So you were basically only focusing on the execution, only what you wanted to do. Yeah, one single thing. thing. Yeah, very one yeah. single small thing. Wow, I love that. And I would like for everybody who's listening, just save that, remember that, because this is gold. This is exactly how you perform well. But I want to throw in another listener question for you here. I mean, we've basically covered this probably, but if you're supposed to answer this question in just like one or two sentences, like summary, this is the classic, you've probably gotten this before. How did you go from being like an average thrower on a regional level when you were young to winning the Olympics? Well, how to make this one short? <laughs> um, it's a huge process and you need to commit to extra work, like being good on the regional level. Let's be honest, we're only playing javelin. Uh -huh. Grab a javelin, practice a little, learn to throw, and you're good on the regional level. If you're not, I don't know, there is no region with like three extremely good ones. Because we're on the global level, javelin is growing. Um, but on the regional yeah. or national level, it's still, you pick the sport, uh, you commit to workout, you commit to a good plan, you commit to learn, um, you make time free for it. And what you yeah. need is the talent to throw. There is people that cannot throw. It's just how it is. Yeah. It's biological. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so you course. have to find out, even if you dream about it so hard, if throwing itself, like throwing a stone, a ball, whatever is tough for you, javelin won't be the right thing. Um, no. But let's take someone that made it to like 70 meters for men's. Going from 70 to 90 is a huge task. Going from yeah. 70 to 80 is work. Going from 80 to 83 is already finding some secrets within your own puzzle. Um, yeah. Not everyone's going to find them because that's the first individual questions that you won't find in a book. Often I see athletes that always, there is great literature about javelin. There is online, there's everything. People copy the workouts. Um, but going from 78 to 83, 85, is just individual. It's just understanding your own technique, understanding your own strength, um, your own gym gym routines and stuff. Um, it's not just the textbook stuff that's going to help from there. And then from 85 to 90 is really here, a lot of feeling, super yeah. much feeling, 
feeling yeah. in in all terms like not just the technique talking about feeling is also about where's my daily optimum in training how do i communicate to coach what what risks am i going to take how many days off do i need or yeah. do i need a flexible day off so there's a lot of things that can only work by feeling and also at the beginning it's just a commitment to work yeah it's so work like really often often yeah. this learning this learning part gets skipped so often like these days these days people they they run into the gym they grab a javelin and yeah. they just work hard i love that but if you don't understand why the thing flies you will never make it fly far that's true that is true you have to understand it it sounds like it's really commitment and consistency and then a whole lot of intuition because you seem to have a lot of that you had a, a talk here in sweden that was actually it was i was coming back from a back injury so if it was before my last or second last season um and you you, uh, you and your coach you came here and had a little training camp and you had a talk and the the one thing that hit me the most because this is something that took me embarrassingly long to understand but it was this feeling that you were talking about try when when you learned you mentioned this now as well try to throw as far as you can with as little effort as possible i think that having the feeling and intuition to be able to do that because you have to be relaxed to do that and this is something that is super important and and that's how you learn your body this this yeah. like and I, I, at this point i need to be honest that also i just listened so i learned that from the team of Torkilson. so it was osmond and, yeah. and his team from oslo that kind of taught me that on a camp yeah yeah it's just we have to pass this knowledge yeah. along because i think it's so important for javelin especially and probably so many other sports as well so i think that's incredibly important so if we move on here now, I want to talk about the big throw, of course, because you start massively in 2017. Well, it wasn't the first competition, but one of them, where you decided to teach all cameramen uh, a very valuable <laughs> lesson when you threw a massive 93-90 and almost hit the cameraman in Doha. Mm -hmm. This is the today the third best throw of all time. Tell us a little bit about that competition. Um, about like, the competition well johannes was yeah, teasing like... me yeah <laughs> well we, we take a little short route for the competition um johannes was teasing me with a, a big throw 89 or something it was the first competition of the year i was well prepared oh, was the... but yeah. yeah it was the first in the of the season yeah yeah now i remember oh sorry season. and um I was like, no, I'm gonna win this today. Like, 89 is a big is a big deal for the first competition, but I'm gonna win today. And I was really just focusing on what we were planning to do for the season, so a little bit more closing of the left hip to create a little more uh, distance of pull and also of kind of time to build up tension. And that really worked. Um, was uh, it was Tero's javelin? That I was still happy about uh, using for the throw. Yeah, so it was the crazy thing about that throw is that it was not that spectacular. Like it's the most spectacular flight ever. It felt super easy. Like that's what I remember from that throw. That that was one of the ones that I really love much. But what people often ask too, like it's not from 
from feeling the throw that I looked back the most. Like there is two from okay. Ostrava, same year, uh, with the 91 okay. and a 91. And the second one, I just picked the wrong javelin. Uh, <laughs> Oops. Do, yeah, well, it's the one time in my career when I regret afterwards that I picked the wrong one. Um, and I, I actually love that throw a little better compared to the, uh, for, to, compared to the Doha one. Um, but okay. yeah, definitely one to remember. But did you, so I love, I have to say, I love that you're saying that uh, Johannes comes out and throws 89 meters and you're thinking, oh, he's teasing me. <laughs> That's a little funny. But so how were you feeling? Like, obviously this is the first competition of the season. So what was your kind of focus going into it? Like, were you just kind of wanted to see where you were at, you were mm -hmm. relaxed or how did you prepare for you it? That's what you do. That's what you do yeah. in the first competition. You want to see where you're at. And it's amazing when you surprise yourself. And I remember <laughs> yeah. having, I think I started with a high 87 or something um, with like a super bad flight. So it went like in a huge curve and it's stuck like 60 degree in the ground. Um, and that's a sign that you just need to get the focus straight. Sure, the body needs to follow what you want to do. But as soon as that works, um, you know that you're capable to throw really far on that day when you have a good distance with a bad throw. Yeah, and you must have been feeling very good and like super confident since you sure. see a 89 meter throw and think, ha, you're teasing me. <laughs> yeah, the body needs to to really give you this positive response. And I said to yeah. coach, coach was there with me, and I said to coach, um, the right side, so whenever we talk about the right side, it's the accelerating system, we say, so the support leg and support system, support knee, um, really feels like I'm running it still at a at an average gear. So there is so much more in the tank that I could use, but never use. Like javelin is a game of optimums, not maximums. Um, and I love to have a huge um, potential between the systems that I'm using and the systems that I can still use if I need to. And that was the case there. And that's that brings me to to looking back at what's going on after injury and now that was when the systems are almost equal when you use everything you have physically um then it just don't work because javelin is you need the optimum just to play on the details so you always need to kind of increase what's in the tank um and have just a little that you have to use and that that ratio was just amazing in doha 2017. yeah so it was just the perfect day it sounds like so, but did it feel like that from like the warm up and everything? I mean, obviously you had that bad throw that was still that far, but like everything was feeling good just from the warm up the whole time. The body was really good, but the technique was first competition, so that was not there at the in the warm up. So I, I put them all on the tip, uh, which is a good sign. So I actually love when I mess up throws when I hit them on the top and the tip goes low. Um, but still, then you need to fix it. And I was lucky yeah. enough to fix it, yeah. I never managed to do that. I always pull them down. I was always <laughs> hitting onto the tip. I, I When I see that, I'm like, how, how do you guys do this? I've never done it. <laughs> it was very interesting. But do you remember what you were thinking right before you went and took that big throw? Again, technical focus, exactly the same. It was a little different focus to Rio, but it's definitely something comparable so very much target orientation 
and uh, a lot of flight, um, kind of flight orientated thought. Yeah, this seems to be the red thread. It's like every athlete I talk to, whenever they're talking about their best performances and what they were thinking, they always perform best when they are focusing on the process or like how they want to execute. That's just amazing. But after this competition and like, I mean, obviously you had a very good season and you had a lot of pressure going into the world championships in London. And I I know that Johannes kept teasing you for the rest of the season. He had a great season too. And it's kind of funny to throw 93-90 and not go into the world championships as the clear favorite. But I mean, everybody was super excited about a duo between you guys. How did you how did you deal with that? Did that affect you in any way? This kind of external uh-huh. pressure? Well, no. Looking at 20, what is it? London. Uh looking at London. This is 17. I just I just risked a little too much there. Um mm. I like looking at the throws, I, I slipped quite much, like 15 centimeters of, of slipping. If you would then just take down the speed a little bit and focus on the flight. Um, they would go better, um, but still, it was a huge year. Like this, this uh, having so many athletes throwing eighty-eight to ninety um, on almost the daily basis of competition. It was just that year for javelin to really um, lit up the world. Like the world of javelin really picked up in the years of 2016, 17, 18. That's really when we made the sport what it is now. So that this is something that yeah. this is one of the, the the ones that sure I became false there for myself. Um, I would have loved to win these, um, but this is a competition where I definitely really just I went in all or nothing. Um, mm. I, I wouldn't do it again because now I'm even more grown up <laughs> compared to that competition. <laughs> Um, but still, I love the output of these years because the, the sports itself and also my personal impact of in the sports and on the sports of javelin throwing was just so huge in these years. Uh, that's yeah. still making me super happy. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and, and it was insane. Like you say, well, you were fourth with over 88 meters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that has, I don't think there are a lot of people that have that thrown 88 something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not gotten a medal. Like, that's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how did you feel about that right after the competition? Were well, you um, I was, disappointed, I was super in, disappointed? <laughs> I was laying in third for quite a long time. And then Peter Friedrich came and, and got, the, oh, yeah, was, got the bronze. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was last Peter, round or something. Uh, it was last round. And I mean, we, we are very, we are a fair competition and we, we are friends and he came from super bad back injury or problems, let's say. And it was a huge win for him too. And I was lucky the year before and then others been lucky. So that's just the sports. It was okay for me. Sure, the force plate is not exactly how you plan it. And you get these wooden medals when you get home and you don't really want them, but it's still nice of people creating them. And uh, you get these wooden trophies and stuff. But um, yeah. It's fourth place. What you're going to tell about it? It's uh, it's great. You're fourth in the world. Um, there's so many kids out there that want to be once competing on the highest level, and we complain about becoming fourth. So also need to check that thought sometimes. But still, you're there yeah. to win. 
But was that your feeling immediately after the competition though? Or is that how you feel about it now? Like, were you No, that's, that's been also, there? well, no, I, I'm not the frustrated person. Frustration is just, uh, just energy that's being lost for no reason. Um, that's wow, something I love I really... that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. That was really, amazing. <laughs> I really don't get being frustrated. It's just, well, all the energy could be used to get out of frustration or do something better. So that, that doesn't help. Like being fourth is something you, you can also chat with Julian about being fourth at, uh, at some championships. And we, we talked about it and we, we almost see it the same way. Like you walk out of being the fourth in the world, which is amazing. Um, and someone else did better than you. And not just one person yeah. did better than you. It's been three persons doing better. So there's nothing much to complain about. Yeah. I remember watching this competition and I mean, it was, uh, it was quite spectacular, but I have to say, like, I, I was really rooting for you, but I, I know Peter as well. And I know mm -hmm. his story and he has been so unlucky, He's such a great guy. So yeah. for him to manage to come there super strong to pull out a PB and take a medal on his last throw, I was super happy for him as well. So it was like, but it was an amazing exactly. competition to watch. Exactly. Yeah. But it must have been tough also in Berlin the next year because then, you know, the pressure on the German throwers, like you said, this was like the golden years and you were all throwing yeah. super far. How did that feel? Like, was there, yeah. wasn't there super pressure at home? Berlin was the most pressurized competition ever. Like my backpack in Rio was big as well because people knew that from the lists and also like at the Olympics, you're not only starting for track and field federation you're starting for the country and the olympic federation and yeah. they work with lists and they put the pressure on you um, whether they want or not um, if you just check the media a little you will understand what people expect from you going into 2018 was really when you had to prove like how good of a competitor are you like how good can you compete yeah. because we all went into the competition with a little bit of problems um it's been years of throwing on a super high level. So there had to come the time when little things come up in season. So we all came from the same level of um, experience, the level of physique um, capability has been the same. So it was really just about competing hard. Um, and I was the one lucky there. Luckily, the Berlin Stadium is not super easy to throw because of many gaps and um, air inlets where the air comes in and um that kind of played into my cards with being the one super precision um yeah super precise on the javelin yeah comes back all those consistency sessions mm -hmm. where you're just yeah. controlling the javelin yeah. yeah they came really back in 2018 yeah yeah, and, and wasn't there also, I remember, this was my last championships, and, and I remember there was a lot of talk. You guys threw before we did, and it was with a track. There was something, mm -hmm. if you had a certain type of spikes, they weren't catching, you were slipping on the track. Did you have those spikes, or did you have the good, <laughs> good ones, you know, that After, weren't? Uh, well, there was so much talk about the track starting 2017 a little when, when we... When we started yeah. throwing over 90 more often, and also then Johannes did, um, he's way heavier. Um, so when he puts his perfect block leg um, flat down in the ground with uh, more than 100 kilos of body weight and the force of run-up, if the, if the track is not 100% there, 
you can wear whatever you want and you're going to slip. And that's yeah. for sure a huge deal. And then we started just to, to kind of save the show, to look at the track and see before of how is the track there? Are we able to kind of create the best performance? Is it safe? Because slipping is dangerous. Mm. Um, so from then on, we started also together with the Federation to check the tracks um, to see if they suit our throws. Um, so there was this coating being made um, to make the track okay. a little bit more stable um, because for the big competitions, you usually get a new track and the new track is usually a little soft and it's usually with a little loose crumbles if you have the old school uh, tartan surface. Yeah. And these loose crumbles are a huge, huge issue. Even using 12 millimeter spikes, um, you can still yeah. run into trouble. So we really love to have a little coating. So 2018 was not too much about the shoes and spikes and stuff. Um, okay. Because we knew, we, we knew quite much about the stadium. Um, but the discussion comes into play year by year because someone's going to adapt well, someone not. Um, these days, I really see it like in winter sports. Some can ride that snow, some can ride the other. Um, so it's also yeah. fair because the sport got more international now. We have athletes that learn to throw um, on turf um, and they throw yeah. on world class now. And we learn to throw on beautiful, perfect um, when use. So it's sure that sometimes one is an advantage and someone not. So I, I'm not really loving this publicity talking about track. Mm. We just need to make sure that the track is safe and it suits the world's best performance. Yeah, that was the reason I'm asking is just because I was there. It was not the what was talked about in the media. It was just because I was there and I remember yeah. just the sheer panic at the hotel mm -hmm. after the qualification in the men's javelin. Then all the ladies started panicking like, oh, no, because it was apparently they were talking about everybody who had that this type of yeah. spikes. They were having, <laughs> no, having the qualification was bad. Like we had, 70 like we had 70 yeah. degrees Celsius on the track. Um, in the qualification. So that was a huge issue just by heat. Oh, yeah, it melted. It melted. It, me it, it kind of, there was, right, it was like in, in the spots where you really hit the block, it kind of yeah. crumbled together just because of the heat and also oh. because we've thrown from the other side. And if I remember right, only one side was coated and the other was not. Um, uh -huh. So I think that was the talk you're talking about at the moment. Yeah. Probably because I had the right type of spike, so I was calm as a cucumber, but my training partner, she had the wrong kind and my coach mm -hmm. was running around trying to get spikes for her. Mm -hmm. so that's why, but not a big thing. But did you feel like that uh, pressure that came on all the German throwers there? Uh, did you feel Definitely. like it affected your preparation? Well, I learned to deal with that. So after becoming the Olympic champion, going into a competition, the things change. There yeah, is everybody more pressure has and you expectations. And you, you, you cannot discuss the pressure away. It's just there. Yeah. So you yeah. have to deal with it. But how do you deal with it? When you say deal with it, I'm, I'm just, um, the reason I'm asking, I'm asking you very tough questions, I know. But it, it's just that this is something that so many athletes are trying to do. And I think that, you know, getting tips from someone like you who's done it so, so well to get like actionable steps or like, 
what were you thinking so on it it mm. helps tremendously that's why i'm being so difficult but how did you take the focus off of that and just deal with mm-hmm. it well first of all accept it be honest about it yes there is pressure okay yes there is pressure um kind of feel what type of pressure is it is it people expecting something from you that you feel like you won't be able to to accomplish or is it something you add up to it like are you even expecting more from yourself and you're just pissed that they also expect the same? So that's basically very often happening that people expect a lot from themselves. They hear a little of expectation from the outside and that just adds up um, to the container that's already full of uh, expectation and, and pressure. And that brings it to, to overboil. Um, and this is why I think it's super important to realize what type of pressure is it? Is it just myself? Do I need to kind of discuss with myself first? Or is it the, the, the public opinion that's kind of um, adding up to my own system? For me, it's a lot of extra spectators. If they expect something, well, these poor guys won't make it to the stadium. The people in the stadium, they expect a good show. That's also pressure. But they just don't write the headline because they sit there, um, watch you. And there's, there's the newspapers, there's the TV. Um, and they just add up to the spectators and the fans. And there will be people that support you. There will be people that will love to see you fail. Um, that's just the reality because fans are fans because they love the one or the other. We are all human and we connect to some characters and we don't co- to connect to some other co- characters. It's just how it works. So I'm, I'm yeah. very, very, um, yeah, down to the earth talking about that because people can have opinions and... I have my own, I have my own expectation. Um, that's the most important for me at, when it comes to competing. Yeah, I think this is that, I think what most people are afraid of is, you know, what are they going to think of me if I can't do it? Like, what if, you know, yeah. I have these expectations as well. I want to do this. I will be super disappointed, but what if I fail everybody else or what are they going to say about me? I think that's the the biggest, but it's a very good I mean, at the end of the day, yes, they can write something about you in the newspaper. And yes, people can think something about you or even say something about you. But it's not really going to change something in your life unless you let it affect you. If you start worrying about it, if you start taking it in, I mean, you're going to wake up the next day with 10 fingers and 10 toes and you're going to be fine. (laughs) Like, it's going to be okay. But you certainly did rise to the occasion, though, and you through 89 meter and you did win there how how was that feeling of you know that was amazing that's all the pressure when i that's when i jumped into the into the uh, steeplechase pit um (laughs) yeah i saw that (laughs) no that was really pressure coming off and that was the toughest competition ever for myself just also dealing with the pressure and also managing the whole thing around it um and also people sometimes weigh up uh, home Europeans, Berlin, because it was the first European championships in a way. It was just an amazing format of competition too. Um, and the Olympics been far away and it's been mid somewhere in the night in Germany. So way more people noticed me winning, winning there with the story of the Olympics in, in, in my back. So that was really, really yeah. helping um, kind of my own brand of being Thomas Röhler Olympic sports person in Germany. So that was super lucky and also well-planned moment. But on the competition side, again, I just had to focus on doing what I'm capable of, of hitting the javelin with the maximum speed possible. 
kept focusing on execution. Yeah. And that's how you delivered. Uh, it's, uh, I, can, I can't even imagine how good it must have felt to, like after all the pressure, after everything, and, and to actually manage to, uh, to win there. It just, it must have been such a sweet relief, but it was great. But you've been struggling with quite a lot of issues since then. You've been having like one injury after another, basically since 2019. And then you had a mm -hmm. baby in 2020. Yep. And why don't you kind of tell in your words briefly, just what has been happening? You know, yeah, since well, then, what injuries you've had and so on. Yes, uh, 2019 season was uh, starting quite normal. Um, I was just, the body was quite exhausted from, from the 2018 stress. And ever since I have a little block foot issues with the Achilles, when, when the season is long and we compete much, that the Achilles um, um, gives a little extra um, yeah, issue. It's happening to many throwers, but 2019, it was quite bad um, going into Worlds. And uh, so my, my block foot was kind of stopping me from, from performing. Um, we did recover really well. Um, we went into preparations for the normal Tokyo uh, 2020. <laughs> um, that also went super good. Um, and we took this, this 2019, 2020 off season so much longer because we felt like, okay, it's, it's now time for this career to have a break, um, just to give the body the chance to, to really heal up a bit, to find balance. Um, and we used that. And we went back to training, went all really, really good. Um, in then also COVID came, um, the whole sports world been tumbled, uh, tumbled around and going this high risk into 20, like into Olympic preparations, uh, I really snapped my back, um, in kind of a mix of events. Like I PR'd in the front squat the one day, then PR'd next day in these bounding jumps, um, from a run up. And when I kind of came out of the pit from the jump, I was like, well, there's something, something's going on here. Um, it was uh. not this, I didn't know what it was. Next day we wanted to have a throwing session. And from that day on, my whole body kind of um, was like a refusing horse when the horse is standing in front of uh. an obstacle. Um, so my body, there was no pain really, but the body refused any throwing related work. And then we found out that it was like one and a half discs making trouble. Um, most javelin throwers do have like uh, gliding, uh, gliding issues as well. That's something that most javelin throwers bring. But the combination of all really, really made long-term trouble um, with me. And as I'm this long-term person, I also took a super long way to recover. Because, as you said, I also became father in the same time. I understood that there is more important things in life than risking yes. the neck for throwing a stick for for something that I have done before, actually. So, so I decided yeah. to go for a super, super long way of recovery, of uh, having yeah, a happy family, helping my fiance, um, building up her own business. We started having a little farm back home. Uh, I went into more projects um, besides track together with partners, sponsors. Um, that's all things that's just part of life. And I accepted that injury and I knew that it's going to take a lot of time to heal. 
and this is just the route that I've been on. And last year I went back to competition. I was hoping to throw a little further already, but being honest with the work that we did in terms of amount of throwing, just to kind of get back technically, because the whole left side of my body um, from the ground on needed to learn throwing again, because the nervous system was really having trouble. Um, so I was actually quite okay, happy with the outcome from last year, um, end of season. I struggled a little with the foot again, but that was just due to a crazy amount of throws in the training. Uh, we've been throwing more than three times a week for more than one oh, year, wow. actually, um, winter oh, and summer. So that was crazy and only worked because we did the years before. Um, so these days you see me smiling. Um, things work really, really well. We're back to very normal training at the moment. And I do see this as a very long-term project. So 24 is, of course, a dream. Um, it won't be easy. No one knows how it's going to end, but I have a very positive feeling about it to say so. Um, and the, the outlook is not that I'm just trying 24 because it's the Olympics. The outlook is way more that I healed up to have a long, beautiful career until the day I want to quit. I, I love this again, the patience, because I mean, I can connect to this. Obviously I have retired now, but I had a stretch fracture in my back in, uh, after, the world championships in 2017 we didn't actually realize that until after berlin so mm. a year later they found out that it was a stress fracture in my back so i that also made me think just like you're talking about like if you have pain in your back it affects everything that you do and that scared me to my very core it shook me because i was like okay how do I want to be able to live, you know, because there is life mm -hmm. after sports and, and do I want to be able to, you know, carry children and play with them? And, you know, am I going to damage my body completely to do this thing for a few more years? You know, so you, you think about that, you get a different perspective when you, when you're in that situation, but is your back uh, completely healed now and your foot is yeah. better and everything is good now? Yeah. You're healthy. It's, it's fully, it's fully recovered. Um, the foot is well, it's that's connected to throwing um it's always it maybe comes and goes it comes and goes and that's the things you have to live yeah. with uh, as a as a thrower yeah. or as an elite athlete there will always be something yeah. um no but the risky yeah. things and the the things that are kind of life um affecting are definitely gone and uh since one year there's nothing really burying me uh in a way that i say that is not normal or not okay in kind of relation yeah. to the training we're doing. But this was, a, I mean, you might say it was only, what is it, three, four years or whatever it was, but that is a lot to a lot it's of people. It's a long people. time. No, it's been a long time. Yeah. Sure. Now, I mean, what did you, was there ever a time where you just felt like, no, I, I can't do this. It's not worth it. I just want to quit. You know, how did you stay motivated to just keep the fire going mm -hmm. and keep going? Yeah, especially this COVID time when sports changed and watching competitions was no fun because it was like ghost things going on. Um, that was a time when I really didn't know what kind of sport am I expecting as soon as I'm done with my recovery. Um, that's been definitely one thought that I had. But then luckily, world kind of cleared up again and people started celebrating sports again. And that also put my motivation um up again because I love competing the same as I love training at home uh, like working these hours spending alone working hard 
but I also love this this emotional part of sports, this social part of sports. And if that would not be there, I think I wouldn't love the sport as much. And I talk about this so free and I talk about it's been just three years because I have my life straight ever since. So even when winning the Olympics, the life back home was the same. It's been very stable. And I think this is just what helps me to to see sports as a huge plus in my life. Yeah, didn't it help you? You you talked about focusing on other things. You were helping your fiance building up her business. You went into some business endeavors. Wasn't it important for you to have something else to focus on while you were going through that injury? Extremely, yes. Um, this, I mean, you you are responsible for the family too, and there is people keeping your 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 back free. Um, they give you the chance to to go for a workout twice a day, um, even though no one knows if it's ever gonna gonna be worth it again in in some way, in an emotional also financial way. So I needed just for my own feeling right. Um, I needed that proof of I'm I'm doing something valuable here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I love how you have been and this has been said to you before but you have been so graciously sharing your knowledge about and you're doing this like 2 minute uh, throwing uh, breakdown. like when you, yeah, breakdown it was uh, where you're helping athletes they're just random athletes sending you in footage of their throwing and you're helping them with their technique and you've been having training camps and talks just like the one I went to in Sweden. And I think it's so important to share this knowledge to, I mean, I'm doing it in a lot of different ways. Like I'm not teaching about javelin, but the mental side. And I think it's, you, you gain so much experience from such a long career. And I think it's so important to share it. But you, you said that now you're feeling great and, and training is looking good. So obviously you're aiming for Paris would you say that you're like on track or how is that going? Yeah, looking on the long-term plan, definitely on track. Uh, we just started throwing balls um, from five steps now. So the speed comes into play. Uh, the body reacts very well. So as I said, I just love being back on a very normal um, training plan, not something making up like huge numbers just to, to learn javelin again. It's more like just getting getting the work done to combine strength and technique. So you're feeling feeling good with the technique now. You felt that yeah. I mean, I guess you must have lost the yeah, connection. Yeah, actually, a also bit you improve. Like when some parts of the body don't work as they they're supposed to, there is a huge risk, and that also happens to do like bad side movements. Um, but yeah. at the same time, some parts of the body learn something. And if you get away from the bad and use what happened in the positive side, it also can be a positive add up. Um, but I never regret that it's definitely not an easy route. Yeah, uh, that's great. That's great to hear. I really hope that I will get to see you <laughs> throw in Paris. That would be great. But I, I have, I actually, like I told you, I got a lot of listener questions for you here now. And I want to go through them this is a lot of questions so we're gonna have to <laughs> try to give us i try to be i try to be quick i just see that we have seven more, more percent of battery life um on my computer oh my <laughs> so okay we, we need to we need to be a little quick now yeah 
either we're quick or you get a charger. I think that's what we're going to have to do. So first thing was what physical drills or mental techniques do you like to use mid competition? Like what do you in competition? Are you using anything, you know, either physical drills or mental techniques? I would say bring, bring a snack and enjoy the competition. So I usually love watching my competitors because I can also learn within competition. So there's always someone Ooh. in the competition throwing together with you that does some part of the throw better than you. So just sit there, watch and learn. It's like the video analysis live. And mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what does your nutrition or diet consist of the day of or the day before a big competition? Is there anything like how do you eat? Just in okay. Um, day off is very different to day before competition. Day before competition, okay. also well, for javelin you just need to feel well. Um, I do eat very natural. Um, we do have a market garden back home, so we always have access to fresh food. Um, we we eat quite plant based. There is not much of industrial processed foods, and nice. um, I do have a look on energy. Yeah. So usually I'm, I'm working out very much CrossFit based as well, especially in the winter time. So I, I do need energy. So sweet potatoes are a huge part of, uh, of the diet. Um, potatoes, um, whole wheat pasta, stuff like that. And that kind of goes into competition eating as well. Then just the amounts drop a little. So I feel well. So you eat more the day before and less the day off. Yeah. Uh, no, well, yeah. the day off, the day off in a training period, I eat as much as I can um, because that day of a day, competition. On uh, the day off the competition, okay, then then it's less. Yes, sure. Then it's yeah, usually yeah. something easy to to to, to digest. Okay. What? Uh, here's another one. What are your favorite competitions? Like, is there? I I interpret yeah, this not necessarily as like your your favorite results or something like this, but like, like where venues. do you love to compete? Yeah, I enjoy Oslo. Helsinki was amazing, but it was just this one time experience. Um, yeah. Then Kurtan is special for javelin throwers. I think you sh- should have been there once if you're a javelin thrower. Um, always good memories for Turku. And for sure, I always have positive thoughts about Doha just because I threw so big there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's on another level to throw javelin in Finland. Like it's, it's amazing. I've traveled with my javelin tube all over the world. And Mm -hmm. every time I get asked, like, is this a pole? Is this a fishing rod? In, (laughs) in Finland, there was a guy that walked up to me on the train. He didn't ask me what it was. He asked me, how far do you throw? <laughs> yes. That's what they know. You know exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there was another one here. What's your favorite technical cue? Tip control. Tip control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also probably the most important one. Yeah. So what does your coach say to you in between throws in competition? I mean, I guess this changes depending on what you need, but you say like most. Almost nothing. Really? Almost nothing. We just, it's kind of a test and test measure. So usually I give him an idea of what I should change or what was wrong. And he gives me the yes, that's true. Or he gives me, uh, in these competitions, like, 
my coach has uh, throat cancer since uh, some years. So we were actually not able to shout and stuff uh, for a long time. So we, we oh, work yeah. a lot with like uh, signs as well. Um, and also the, the big competitions, you cannot hear each other because it's just crazy loud usually. Oh. And it needs to be quick because I, I keep my mind straight in the competition. I don't want that much of influence from the outside. So usually he's just a proof of what I'm thinking. And I don't actually even know and I don't want to know until the end of my career if he sometimes just proves just to give my mind the, the feeling of, of, of proof or if, if he really thinks it the same way in the, in the situation. But usually it's really <laughs> I have an idea of I should go a little to the right and he gives me yes or he, he says, hey, go, go a little more to the left. So it's very much orientated on flight again. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what advice would you give someone at the start of their javelin journey? Somebody okay, who is stay starting. Away, stay away from the gym and learn a proper technique. Oh, thank you. Yes. Learn the technique. Uh, it's, it's so dangerous to become strong first. Yeah. I mean, I made a little bit of that mistake. I mean, I, I learned the technique somewhat first. Then when I started getting pretty decent, then I got too strong. And it's a little bit embarrassing when you're, I don't know, 33, four, five years old and you're looking at videos from when you were 23 and looking like a skinny little stick and you're like, oh, I wish I could throw like you're doing there. You know, it's just, everything changed. So I think this is a great advice. And here we go. It's probably intertwined. This is the last question. What's the most common mistake you see in javelin? Most common mistake in technique is upper body leaning to the front. Ah, so yeah. most, most people forget to kind of also use the control of the head and the sideline um, just to control the upper body position. It's connected to throwing hard because people still think that throwing is something that's done with the arm, but mm. javelin throwing is not. Javelin throwing happens on the ground. It's a buildup of tension. It's a release of tension. So it's more like a, a bow. Um, so that that understanding goes wrong many times. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good one as well. So now I just want to thank you for giving me all this time. I want to end our interview, interview here by asking the three simple questions that I mm -hmm. ask all my guests. Now I can say that since it's my third episode. Now, uh, just if you give me a short answer, just one to two sentences. Uh, first question is, do you think that you would be in a different place right now in your career if you had done something to start training your mind right from the start? You talked about this a little bit before, but you know, do you think you would be in a different place right now? I would say no, because I'm happy with the route I went. Okay. That was very interesting. And next one, and this is something that I want everybody to ask themselves, but I'm really curious to hear yours. What is your why? Why do you throw javelin? Uh, it's the passion. Like I love, as a kid, I was super fascinated by planes and I wanted to become pilot. And I love things that fly and making something fly far is just something that kind of fascinates me from, from the heart or like from this human basis of what I'm capable of doing. And I, what I love about the event, talking about track and field events, is that I kind of love watching my own effort 
So when the javelin yeah. travels in the air, I'm done. So I can enjoy and watch or learn or whatever. So that's that's a part that I really, really love. And as soon as the spectators come into play and there is this special whoa in the stadium when they see the javelin travel, um, that's something special. Yeah, I can I can completely re- relate to this. This is a, something that I could never explain to anyone, but you're probably going to understand this. The, the best feeling ever is just being out on the grass somewhere with your javelin and you just run and you throw one of those like easy throws and then you just stand there out on the field and you just watch it fly just after you mm-hmm. release it. It's just some deep satisfaction in that feeling. I, I can't explain it. But it's just this like, ah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think that's exactly what you're talking about here. So then is the last one. How do you get in the zone? The name of the podcast is The Athlete's Zone. So what do you do or how do you get in the zone? You can interpret oh, well, that question however you want. In, in 98% of the time, it, it just happens by knowing in my calendar that there's a competition coming up and everything to get into the zone just happens automatically, um, including the call room, including walking on the field. Um, If I'm not there yet, I just need to close my eyes and put myself into a situation I was before, like I've been in the zone from time to time um, successfully. So I then just go on the venue, close my eyes, Take some seconds and then um, usually I'm there. So it's really just going through the kind of process, like mm-hmm. the call room and all that and the warm up. Yeah. And or you just, if it's not enough, then just closing your eyes and just regaining focus and then you're there. Yeah. That's really powerful. Thank you so much. So that was it for my questions. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. And before I let you go, where can people find you? Let them know uh, all about that. They can find me on, on most platforms, uh, since some days also on threads. <laughs> I don't know if that's the next thing, but um, no, most updates are coming on, on Instagram at Thomas Röhler. Thomas Röhler on Instagram. You mostly yes. are on Instagram. Or? Yeah, that's where most things happen. YouTube okay, is, I'll... as an active athlete, too, too time-consuming, but I still love that's the platform. Tough. So maybe there's a little more coming in the future, but we, we need to see stay on the lookout but is there anything that you want to let people know about anything that you got coming up anything you want to promote here's your Uh, spot i would just like to thank everyone that uh, was with us now for one and a half hours talking javelin (laughs) and life and being an athlete and i just wish you all the best for for your own um yeah root in sports or life whatever it is enjoy performance Thank you. And I want to say to everybody listening, if you enjoyed this, like I said, Thomas does the two-minute throws breakdown. He will help you with your technique. Go and follow him on Instagram. You will support him just by engaging with his content. And it's really good stuff. And he gives back. He helps you. So make sure that you go and follow him. Thank you so much for the chat today, Thomas, and for taking the time. I know that people are going to learn a lot from this. Have a good day. Thank you, you too. Well done finishing another episode of the Athlete Zone podcast. Connect with me at Athlete Zone Podcast on Instagram and share your thoughts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time, train smart.